Welcome to our viewers on CruxInvestor.com and also to our listeners on CruxCast, our new podcast series. We're going to be speaking today with Mike Alkin. He's a fund manager uh, specializing in uranium. So, hello, Mike. How are you? Good, Matt. How are you? Good, good to be speaking to you. So you're, where are you? Are you in, you're in New York? I'm in New York, Long Island. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay. You made a bit of a life choice. If you, you, you're an ex-hedge uh, fund manager. I am. But you made, a well, life, you made a bit of a life choice there, and you decided that uranium was the way forward. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that started? Yeah, I was in the hedge fund business, long short, uh, analyst, became a partner over the years uh, at a few different funds. Uh, last one was a multi-billion dollar fund. And in 2015, uh, my daughter became very, very ill, and uh, we almost lost her. Sorry to and hear that. So that was after a long career and a lot of travel and being weekend dad, um, that kind of changed my view of things. And so I decided at that time that I, thank God she uh, survived and she was in the hospital for, for quite some time. And, uh, and she's I'm ha very happy to say today she's uh, still has a condition, but she's, she's thriving. Fantastic. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time. So I just thought I would kind of be dad. And yep. Good uh, on you. after several months, it was clear that she was turning the corner and she was, uh, and I was home and I was taking the kids to school once she went back to school and, and I was trying to make dinner and help out around the house. And my wife said like, time out. Um, the reason <laughs> we've had a great 20 plus year marriage is you're always on the road or you're always working and it right. works out perfect. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Encroaching on my territory here. <laughs> Uh, so I, I had to decide what I wanted to do. And it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't to go back and work at that, that grind. And, and, and the, the, the big firm I was at had morphed into a family office uh, and, or was morphing into a family office. And there were changes taking place there. Uh, the, uh, I didn't want to start a long, short hedge fund uh, because it's, it's a, the capital raising environment is, is difficult. And it's, I believe it's really hard to generate alpha, right? To above average returns when you're a couple of guys in a Bloomberg terminal, uh, call it two guys in a Bloomberg. Uh, and so, uh, and I, I feel as though that portion of the business is, is on the back nine, right. if you will. Yeah. And, and the bigger funds have more assets and more resources and everything else at their disposal. Uh, so I really was just home managing my own money, picking my own stocks. And uh, it, throughout my career, my first half of my career, uh, I was a dedicated short seller. I, I dug deep in the weeds uh, from a forensic standpoint, both in the field through the financial statements, and uh, would just look for, for companies that were either just, I thought, overvalued, but had a catalyst to to get the value realized that I thought it was worth, or just bad companies, bad guys, frauds. But that was the first half of my career. Uh, so obviously as a short seller, you have a contrarian bent. Uh, and on the long side, you know, the firms I were at were, were deep value oriented uh, in, the, in the middle to latter part of my career. Uh, with great exposure to natural resources, oil and gas, I, I had exposure to that. So. Uh, with time on my hands, one of the things is when you're at a fund, 
you know, if, if you have a portfolio, a segment of the portfolio, you may have 20, 30 investments. And you're always in different industries. When you're a generalist, you're always chasing your tail, working a, a lot, but you don't really, you, you focus in on, on those top names, but you don't have the time to do. You, uh, you understand as somebody- uh, Yeah, been there. Speaking to the choir, right? Indeed. But, but now for the first time in my life, I, have, I had time. And so I was able to choose no and no performance pressures to perform day to day or week to week or month to month. So it was uh, what is interesting to me. And along the way, I, and, I, and, and somewhere along the way, uranium crossed my desk. You know, I'm, I'm screening for new ideas, what's been beaten up, what's excessively priced on the show if I was looking for shorts. And I know myself and uranium crossed my desk. And I said, you know, I, we looked at that in 2007. We looked at it in 2011. But at that time, we looked at it very, very briefly. We had a lot going on. Uh, in 07, it had hit, the price of uranium had gone from nine bucks a pound a few years earlier to 137. And uh, we, we just had a lot of investments at the time. So we didn't spend too much time, maybe less than a week. Um, concluded that it was complicated. The industry was very complicated, so we moved on. Uh, 2011, after Fukushima, uh, the accident there, uh, we did the same thing and just said, you know what, we can't draw a conclusion. Mm. So I had very, very faint familiarity with it. But what attracted me at, at in, in the latter part of 15 was this was an industry whose market cap at one time was exceeded $150 billion. The number of companies that were uh, in the uranium or had the name attached to it were, was over 500. And when I was looking at it, the market cap, when I started to look at it, the whole industry was sub 5 billion. And, and the price of the commodity was down over 90%. And the, uh, uh, the number of uh, participants from an institutional standpoint were virtually non-existent. And so I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. So that's what piqued my curiosity uh, and, and then I started reaching out to people I know on the sell side and I asked for models. Let me, let me see what the industry looks like. And I started getting really dated models. Mm. And I thought, huh, I, I've been doing this a long time now, a few decades, and I can't recall a time where I saw an industry that looked like it was left for dead, that had declined this much. What I didn't have was that knowledge of mm. the growth drivers of nuclear power. And that's one of the things as a Westerner living in the States or living, if you're living in North America or Western Europe, uh, you know, nuclear power is a four letter word. And so my, my awareness of it was, uh, it's dying, it's decreasing. I had more awareness of wind and solar because somewhere along the way as a short seller, I was looking at component makers and other stuff. Um, so I said, let me come at this through the eyes of a short seller. Let me prove the bear case. And uh, the first thing I did was try and understand the growth drivers. And I wanted to understand the role of renewables, wind and solar. Um, and that, in, sorry, can, in, I, can I ask, Mike, I mean, had you been involved in, in energy in any way as part of your previous portfolios? So uh, randomly, uh, but the firms I was at, two, two firms, both had dedicated uh, uh, oil and gas energy. Right. So as, as a partner, I was always around it. Um, so knowing what the drivers were mm. and then other resources as well. Um, but no, no expertise whatsoever. I still don't. 
I'm not, I laugh when people say the uranium expert. I mean, I think, <laughs> the greatest, I think the greatest, I think the greatest uh, uh, asset an investor can have is to be a generalist, uh, especially when you're looking at deeply cyclical businesses. I'll give you an example, Matt. I, I, I won't look at biotechnology companies, for instance, for me. There's no amount of knowledge I could learn that would make me be able to understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, deep financial uh, companies that are uh, big money center banks, they're so opaque, forget it. But in, in most other things, if, if you're a reasonably bright person and you bring a clean slate to it and you know what to look for, the drivers of supply and demand, it, it's not that complicated. Uh, now, I will say the, the nuclear fuel cycle by orders of magnitude, once I started diving into it, was the most complicated industry I'd ever looked at. Well, but we're definitely God we're going to get into that for sure. Thank God I didn't need to be a nuclear scientist because I would I would have bailed out. Right. So, so you you kind of you've made the uh, conscious decision. It's a life changing event uh, for you, and you a life changing decision you made. You, you think right? Uranium seems to be an opportunity, which for, for whatever reason no one else is paying attention to. So you, do you feel you kind of you, you, you got in at the right time? You got in a bit early. Do you think others are so late? So I, I look, yeah. So I started the Sachem Cove Partners in June of 2018. Right. Uh, so okay. late, late, late 2015 is when I started uh, peeling the onion back. And that was literally modeling out every nuclear reactor on the planet because I felt mm -hmm. the data was dated. And it was looking at every reactor, when it was built, when it, the license expired, when uh, was there a renewal in place, was it going to happen? And I went country by country, and I looked at every country where nuclear power is derived, and what is the political atmosphere? What is the atmosphere for growing it, shrinking it, or staying neutral? Mm -hmm. And what I, what I did as I was trying to understand demand by building it from the ground up was to go draconian. So if there was a country that was talking about uh, close, shutting, uh, shutting it down or reducing dependency, that went into my numbers. Uh, and I did that and I looked at planned and future reactors. And I took only a very small portion of those because you don't know what, what the future is going to hold. Hmm. And then those reactors under construction. And I wanted to understand the role of nuclear versus wind and power. And wind and power growing, people tend to, to turn into a zero sum game. But, but I, don't, I don't believe it is. Uh, so when I did all of that, and that, that took several, several months, uh, reactors under construction, existing reactors, a small portion of those planned and proposed by country uh, and closed down a lot of them, I, I concluded, you know what, this is actually a, a growth business. It's a, it's a one, one and a quarter, one and a half percent grower. And if I want to get a little goofy and bring in some of those other reactors, I could get two and a half, three percent. When I did that, I said, wait a second, this is an industry that's come from market capitalization of over 150 billion to less than 5 billion. Mm. Uh, it's, it's 11, 12% of the global electricity grid. It's growing. There's a disconnect here. And there was only, there was only really one major company and that was Cameco yeah. uh, that, of any substance of market cap. And then I realized that this was the big thing for me. I have never in my career seen an industry that is critical to the infrastructure of certain countries in the world from an electricity standpoint that basically had been left for dead by institutions. And that's when I said, 
let me really dive into the supply side. And as I dove in there, that's when I started this. Now we're, we're, this was 2016, all of 2016, the latter part of 2015 is when I really devoted time to this, never speaking publicly about it. Right. Right. And then the first time I ever spoke publicly was in March of 2000 or April of 2017. Right. uh, On, on real vision TV. And what what was the reaction? It was, it was, you know, uh, it was, it was good. It was, it was well received. It was, oh, uranium. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. And then I was asked to speak at an, another investment conference in the summer. And I kind of, I, I started to really, what started to, I think, validate in my mind that there was something to the thesis is here's a guy who a year and a half ago couldn't tell you anything about uranium. Yeah. yeah I'm not yeah. a mining engineer. I'm not a geologist. I know that. I know what to avoid in terms and I know where to go find help for that stuff. But, but here I was, I presented a thesis that was a little different uh, and they're up on YouTube. People could look at them and I explained the industry and the fuel cycle. And you would have thought I reinvented the wheel. And I had uranium companies reaching out to me, asking me my view on the global macro of uranium. And I thought something's not right here. Um, And so that was really then. And now, what determines, you know, it's interesting, the early question. Uh, I don't think about it in terms of, especially as a private investor, well, now with a fund, with, a, with my investors knowing that there's a longer term time horizon. Um, I look at risk reward. You know, the way I view this all, Matt, is uh, there are, I, I like to take a few swings, fewer uh, swings at the ball, the better. And so in this particular case, it's all, all I measure is risk reward. What, what, what is the amount of upside I have versus the amount of downside? Hmm. And if I take care of my downside, and that's how I was taught in this business, and that's how I live this business. If you focus on the downside and where you could be wrong and where you're going to go if it's wrong, if the fundamental work is right, the upside will take care of itself. So normally uh, I'll look for, three to one, four to one. I like that three, four times up. So if something's 10% down, you have 40% up, right? For simple math, for those who are just learning what that is. When I started looking at uranium, it was orders of magnitude different. And I I started looking at the downside and I said, okay, well, I I, I don't, I think I have rather, I could, I think I can get my head around the downside. I'm very comfortable with what that downside is. I don't care if it takes one year, two years, three years, because I can't get that upside anywhere else. And so that's kind of how I think about it. Now, at that time, the price of uranium was in the mid-20s, probably low to mid-20s. Today, here we go, a couple of years later, it sits in the low to mid-20s. The equities have had a little bit of a fit and start. So from a risk-reward standpoint, I'm sitting there thinking, my goodness. Uh, and, and there have been a couple of things that have uh, caused uh, a little bit of a push-out from the uh, uh price realization standpoint mm. yes well, let, well let's come on to that but you know and here, here's the bit where the the uh, the followers of of and watchers of this video might um well the, the experts might feel feel that the, this isn't for them but i we need let's do this for the people new to uranium okay so sure. let's start with the basic i want to i want to look at as the way that you know you and i have done in our careers you break down mm. all the variables and you try and work out what each of those is and then you kind of put them back together here so can we start really basic? 
what is uranium, what types of uranium uh, is there, and you know what are the, what are the uses? Just just helicopter view stuff for, for sure. The beginning. Sure. Yep. So uh, uranium is abundant in the earth. Hmm. <clears throat> Getting it out of the earth economically is different. Uh, so it it comes out uh, either one of two ways: uh, conventional mining. Right. Uh, which is open pit or underground, or what's called ISR, in situ recovery. Some refer to it as, as ISL mining. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically, we all know what an open pit or underground mine looks like. If you think about ISR, it's basically think about uh, what you would see when you see an oil or gas well being drilled. So you drill down, you put, into, you put injection wells in, you put a solution in, you separate uh, the uranium from the rock, you bring it up through uh, uh, pumps that are bringing it up, you process it, and, and those are the two methods. Um, the ISR mining method is less upfront capital expense, but a relatively high ongoing expense to maintain it, and you also have uh, typically have uh, decline rates that are fairly high. Right. Uh, so that, that's the method. Now, once it comes out of the ground, it gets processed and, uh, dry, and, and dried into drums. And you'll hear the term yellow cake. Yep. And it gets put into drums and it looks, it looks yellow. From there, it then gets sent to a conversion facility where it's turned into UF6. It's a gas. From there, it gets sent on to an enrichment facility where for nuclear power, when it comes out of the ground, the energy content is 0.7%. Uh, to, to, to power a nuclear power plant, it needs to be enriched to between 3 and 5%, and for a nuclear weapon, over 90%. Right. And it goes through an enrichment plant. Uh, and, and then from there, it gets sent off to a fabricator where uh, that enriched uranium product, EUP, is turned into very small pellets the size of my thumbnails. And if you stay with me, that's a pellet. Wow. That's it. There you go. And you, you, you put a lot of pellets into the fuel rods. Right. And Interesting. There you go. So, so, so from there, uh, it, it then gets sent to a uh, nuclear power plant. It gets put into the reactor. Now the length of time for that to occur is eighteen to twenty-four months. Right, that's the fuel cycle. Right. So, so again, just to come and take it back to sort of uh, what people might understand conventional mining terms. So, the, in, in in the sense that you know gold comes out of the ground um, with you know there's different different levels of uh, grading for a lot of commodities, or you you find it in different quantities. Here, the like, same rules apply, I guess, and then the enrichment process. Is yeah. Where you so, kind of... yeah. So, so where where the grade matters is the economics of the mining. Right. Right. Okay. So, the higher the grade, the less rock you got. To... So the same rules apply. Okay. Okay. When I think of uranium, I think of uh, Kazakhstan, Canada, Australia, as the big ones. But you, but you say it's also everywhere. But those seems to be the the three. Richest... Well, it's not everywhere in the world, but where it is, there's plenty. It's getting it out economically. That's right. Important. Right. Okay. So, what, so why don't you tell us about you know a little bit about you know you know the the amount of uranium there is in the world currently you know what you you know where you, yeah, where, so, where you well, think it so, needs to be. 
So, I mean, the, from a demand perspective, uh, and, and, and you asked earlier about the uses, most of the uranium that comes out of the ground is in most of the uh, demand comes from nu civilian nuclear power. Right. So and nu then nu you nuclear reactors, as the Joe public would yeah. know them as. Okay. And yeah. you, you talked about, so you, you've identified obviously how many reactors there are in the world currently, how many are being built and yeah, how many are in planning. There's 450 operate, uh, they call them operating reactors, but right. they're not all operating. Okay. And from that number, there were 54 in Japan that went offline after Fukushima melted down, right. after you had the uh, accident at Fukushima. Nine have since restarted. And then you've had starts and stops but along the way. So in the 420-ish range, mm. that's actually serving electricity to the grid. There are today, there are about 55, 56 reactors under construction around the world. Mm -hmm. And there are hundreds of reactors in the planning and or proposed stage. Right, okay. So that gives a sense of those numbers. And then you also mentioned earlier the fact that there used to be a lot of uh, uranium uh, companies that existed. And I, I guess with the the peaks and troughs of the market and the, and the spot price coming in and out and these black swan events of you know, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, etc. You know, these companies have uh, increased and declined in equal measure. So today, how many producers are there? Uh, so if you think about the nature of the natural resource industry, especially the junior miners, mm. when the price of uranium went from nine bucks to 137, everyone wanted to become a uranium miner. And so and then the cycle turns and they're caught, they're stuck. So that's a lot of those companies, right? So the, the kind of the way I think about the, there's state-owned production, mm. right? Countries, state-owned, and then there's uh, private and public companies. Uh, so you have producers, near-term producers and exploration and companies. Uh, from a production standpoint, as you look around the world, 41% of all uranium comes out of Kazakhstan. Uh, about half of that from Kazakhstan, roughly, mm. uh, comes from the state-owned entity called Kazatomprom. Mm. Kazatomprom uh, was, if you go back to the mid-2000s, was a very uh, early 2000s uh, to mid-2000s, was a small player, and so was Kazakhstan. And they've expanded, they've massively expanded their, their reach uh, to now they're the number one player in the world. Uh, uh, Kazakhstan's number one country in the world, Kazatoprom is also the largest one. Now they just floated 15% of the company to the public uh, in, the, in November, December of last year. Yeah. Then you get into your other producers, you would get into uh, Orano, which is the state-owned French nuclear giant. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and they have production in various places. Niger is a big producing point for them. Uh, they also have joint ventures in Kazakhstan as well. Uh, the next one you get to is Cameco uh, in, in, in Canada, in Saskatoon, Canada, uh, which has really been the, 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 the leader in the space from, from uh, technological standpoints. They own two of the biggest mines in the world, MacArthur River and Cigar Lake. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're a 20-ish percent producer. Mm. Uh, and, and the fascinating thing about this is as you start getting Kazataprom and, and Cameco, just those two alone, uh, are uh, over 40%. Kazakhstan and the joint ventures in Kazakhstan 
and Cameco are over 60% of production. So you have a very concentrated production base amongst your majors. Yeah, and I, you know, I do want to talk about that in, in a minute in terms of you know, the, their control in the marketplace and their influence in the marketplace. And we will come on to that when we get back into the, sort of, you know, the, the more meaty areas of the discussion. But just to kind of continue this um, you know, conversation with regards to understanding what the variables are, if, if you don't mind. Um, so there's politi- you know, politi- the political or geopolitical component to this because it's a very emotional, emotive subject. The psychology of it is is definitely um, you know key driver between thinking of you know 20, 30 years ago, um, and I, I, I do see that changing. Obviously, you've got influencers like um, Bill Gates. Um, you know, you know, affecting people's perception, and there's a lot, there's a lot of work being done around that. Um, so, I mean, if you don't mind, I mean, can you can you give us your, your view on this sort of geopolitical state? You did touch upon it there with obviously Cameco and Kazatomprom and um, Arano. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you see that at the moment? Mm-hmm. How does that work? So, uh, you know, for decades, the United States was the leader in nuclear power, right? Nuclear power and nuclear weaponry. And it's an important role to be at the table and a leader in the fuel cycle is because through the various agencies, uh, you can, and, and, techno, and technology, when you're building reactors, uh, you can play a role in non-proliferation because you have a seat at the table and you can help dictate who gets what and where and so on and so forth. Uh, if you go back to the 80s, during the Cold War peak, the United States was consuming uh, 45, 50 million pounds a year of uranium and producing in the 40 million pound range. You fast forward to today, the United States produces less than a million pounds and consumes close to 50 million pounds. Geopolitically, it's been a sea change over the last uh, 15, 20 years. And what you see now is that uh, the Russians and Chinese, uh, and you have the Koreans, but the Russians and Chinese are are dominating the nuclear fuel cycle. Mm. And You think about Russia and energy and how they use their influence in natural gas, let's say, on on Western Europe. Uh, What they've done in the nuclear power space, for them, they should be commended because they're using it to their advantage. You know, the, the nuclear power growth story is not a developed world story. It's a developing world story. And so in the in the West, it might be flat, it could slightly decline a little bit. You get a few come on the grid, but it's neutral in the developing world is where all the growth is coming. And what the Russians and the Chinese have done is have vertically integrated the fuel cycle. And so if you are Rosatom, the state-owned entity, or if you're the Chinese, which has a couple of entities, uh, they will go into these developing countries and they will say, we will, we will, most of these countries that are becoming more, uh, 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 they're economically developed, they have to deal with coal and pollution, and it, you know pollution kills seven million people a year. So what they will go is say, well, look, we'll bring you clean air, we'll bring more people in scale onto the grid with nuclear power, right? So we increase standards of living, uh, and we will finance the reactor for you. We'll build it for you. We'll provide the uranium, the conversion, the enrichment, the fabrication. We'll help operate it for you. We'll get mm-hmm. you set up. Now they own you in terms of that on that regard. So you're dependent on them. The West has 
And when you're in China or Russia and you're building a reactor, uh, yeah. if it's five or six years and it's six billion dollars, it's what it is. A little bit here or there. In the West, it's twice as long, twice as much. Yeah, so, and I, so I, I, I do appreciate. That. I mean, I, I quite I've read about this and the way that the the Chinese and the Russians coming in and. You know, pay, pay, you know, they they pay for everything, and and they're also you know bartering na bartering nations. They 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 can be paid in other mineral resources as well. So I I do quite like that. And with countries like Africa, where the you know the GDP isn't isn't huge and this available cash is not huge, you know, this is a very very attractive proposition. Um, but it also means that relationships get built, which is not necessarily what America wants to see. So you Correct. know that's what I'm. You know that's this whole geopolitical component is very very important, especially with this recent two three two piece well, exactly. in the marketplace, where I think the proposition there is that it was on the basis of national security, but do you think it is about national security? I do. As right, an American, okay. I do. Right. Um, so tell tell me about yeah. that because this is all intertwined, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So uh, the Americans have lost their seat at the head of the nuclear industry. Um, I, I do believe that. Um, and in many ways, and from building reactors uh, to enriching uranium, enrichment is so critical. Without enriched uranium, the reactors don't work unless it's what's called a candy reactor up in Canada, right. where there's certain reactors that don't need enrichment. Right. But, but for the most part, it, it needs to be enriched. And in the United States, there is no enrichment that is owned by the US. There's a plant in New Mexico owned by an English, Dutch, German conglomerate called Urenco. Right. Uh, but, but so the United States, you know, consumes 50 million pounds per year, and most of it in the nuclear reactors. The Navy is known as the nuclear Navy, right? The Navy has been uh, uh, nuclear-powered submarines and carriers. It's, it's a huge the, number, isn't it? How big is the fleet, the nuclear number. fleet? Oh, it's hundreds, yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's but it's critical hmm. to to the navy and they have reactors all over. They're floating reactors, and uh, and so and then you know there's other things that uh, nuclear is used for for medicine and whatnot. But most of it's nuclear power. But here's a country whose 20 percent of its electric grid, so one out of five homes or businesses, are powered by nuclear power. Um, yet it imports 99 percent of its uranium needs. Right. And there's no substitute in a nuclear power plant. You can't substitute something else. It's uranium. That's your feedstock. Uh, and so uh, what, what you see wind, what winds up happening is, is the production here is, is less than a million pounds, and they import the rest. Now, we have our friends, uh, the Australians and the, and the Canadians, who are you know, just like we're friendly. Uh, they're our best, best mates. Um, but in any given year, it could be from 30 to 40 to 50 to a little bit more that will come from what one would argue could be the Russian sphere of influence. Right. Kazakhstan, Russia, Uzbekistan. And why, um, why is that problematic for you? Why is that not just open markets? What, 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 is, what, is, what is America nervous of in that scenario? So, so the Russians will easily use natural gas as a geopolitical weapon into Western Europe. We see that with Nord Gas 2 um, coming into Northern Europe, yeah. Exactly. And and so you you have something that's so critical to your infrastructure and to your military that, you know, the Navy is what 
enables America to be America. You can, it can be anywhere in the world. And it's that the, I, I believe that the, the U.S. naval fleet is the size of the 10 next biggest naval fleets. It's, it's something as crazy as that, yep. yep. It is something as crazy as that. Yeah. And so, and it, it, it has become reliant upon it. Now, there are stock stocks of it, but that's not forever. That's going into the middle of the next decade. So you're saying even, so, even with the partners, Australia, Canada, Canada, with um, your, your Canadian friends, you're saying that you don't want to be beholden to them or reliant on well, them, right. even us, you know. Well, so uh, here's, well, it's, it's a matter of, yeah, so it, 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 it goes beyond the friendship. And so if we look at really what it is and, and it's, you know, the utilities will make the complaint that, and by the way, I should preface this. I don't care as an investor which way 232 comes out. It right. doesn't matter to me. Right. As an American, I, 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 I'm inclined to want to see something happen. And, and here's why. Hmm. Um, the, if we think about the production that comes out of Australia, and it comes down to economics. Yeah. The Australians have uh, uh, Olympic Dam, which is uranium is produced as a byproduct of copper production. So... Uranium will come in or out depending on what copper's doing and how much they feel like investing in that. Right. And then you have Four Mile, another mine down there, which is a few million pounds a year. Yeah. Now you move up to Canada, our great friends a little bit to the north of us, and they have one producing mine, Cigar Lake. It's MacArthur because it's Canada, been closed down, right? MacArthur River is of 18 million pounds per year, right? So what what that's saying is. And this is where I think the disconnect, and we can, we'll go into great as much length and depth as you want to, Thank you. is the economics of, of such are, well, first off, the, the Canadians uh, and uh, the Australians. Uh, now, BHP will be more of a spot seller, but Four Mile will be a contract. Uh, Cameco has 150 million pounds of contracted future deliveries. Now, they are producing out of a joint venture in Kazakhstan called the Inkai JV. They'll get 4 million pounds a year from that. They've got Cigar Lake uh, producing and you know you get 18 million in their portion of it. Hmm. Uh, but then as you start to, that, that's not a lot of pounds. And, and MacArthur River is offline because the economics are such where it doesn't make sense for them to produce the highest grade uranium mine in the world at prices that are 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 not economically incentive uh, incented, so so yes, we can say, hey, Russia, Canada, Australia, the Russians, let's say, make it up. The Russians have, and the, and the Kazakhs are withholding uranium. And by the way, last year in the Duma, and the first version of it, it didn't, it was unclear how it's come out, but it 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 the Duma gives gives the president the authority to on certain critical minerals to say, yep, not sending it in. Now, do you want, do you want to be at that? Because what happens is the inventories will, the utilities will keep a couple of years of inventory around. Now, if you start to exhaust those inventories and all of a sudden and it's a two year fuel cycle and you, you, and the spot market, as, as we just saw from Cameco announcing on their conference call, they couldn't find a million pounds in the spot market. So now where do you go? Well, well, you've got, India with a voracious appetite for uranium. You've got China with a beyond a voracious appetite for uranium. Yeah. The world has a lot of people who want uranium. And so maybe their production isn't there, which it's not now, 
All right, you've got these two in Australia and one in Canada. So we can't just say, oh, we'll trust them because the economics don't make sense for them to be able to, to meet the demand of 50 million pounds. That's that's a lot of demand. That That's a third of, you know, that's more than a, less than a third, but it's a big amount. Yeah, I mean, so many questions, so many questions, but let's- let's, so, let's so see, national security, yeah. manufacturing, it, it's powering manufacturing facilities. If in time of, uh, need where you needed to ramp up manufacturing. Who knows what the world will bring if you have a war, and 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 you have a fifty-year grid that's in peril. That could be that that can be national security. So there's a few things you said there, which um, in 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 conjunction with two three two, you've got utilities with contracts, you've got producers with contracts, long-term contracts. Um, and there's a bit which is kind of confusing me here in the sense of of two three two. It was brought by, I think, uh, Energy Fuels and UR Energy, um, put forward by them. We're not quite sure of the detail um, as to you know, what, what is being asked for or indeed what will be found by President Trump and his team. Um, but it seems to me that it's kind of frozen the market. The mm -hmm. utilities are waiting to see what's going to happen. Like yeah, for you, you just said, I don't care uh, as an investor I mean, what the announcement is. Doesn't yeah. it? Right. Doesn't affect you. Doesn't for these guys, it's a big, it's a big deal because they're committing to forward contracts at one price and it comes see, out another. It, you see it, me, it, you see me shaking my head. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Right. You're feeling the same pain, right? Um, no, or or well, same confusion, should I say? No, um, no, no, no. And I'll tell you why. I, right. I have it. Can I step back for a second please, to answer please. that? Yeah. So it's a big, it's a big question. So, so one of the biggest surprises I have had in. Uh, my journey in the last four years in the world of, of uranium uh, is the lack of diversification and analysis in the actual uranium market by all industry participants. There's a handful of industry observers that opine with numbers. And uh, some are handcuffed by what they can include in it, others have their own reasons for putting out a high, low, and base case that you can drive an ocean liner through, which allows you to morph to wherever the market is. Uh, but one of the things that I think surprised me the most was in speaking with many, and I won't name names, but many uranium mining companies, was the reliance upon those entities for their numbers. Right. And one of the things when I started diving in here and peeling it back and spending a year and year and a half and the light bulb went off and said, well, I went on and said, these numbers are, are not economically driven. They're project driven, but not economically driven. Some of these what do you, numbers- What do you mean by that? Tell me, tell me what you mean by that. project driven well, versus- so, so if you're one of the entities, yeah. you, you, because there was a great, um, uh, great uranium cartel, great book too, called The Great Uranium Cartel in okay. the 70s and 80s. Right. And people, it was front page news around the world and people went to jail over it. Right. And so if, if, you, if you go to one of these fuel conferences, what you'll see, uh, a, uh, a uranium industry conference, you'll see uh, on, the, on the registration thing, you'll see a sign that says, please do not talk commercial activities, do not talk terms. Do, they, they're afraid of price collusion. Mm. And so as the sausage is made, in in some in one of these entities, the costs of these projects in the future 
the cost, the commercial cost to maintain a, a project that's in production is counted in future production. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, but, but these companies outside of the state owned entities are most of them are public companies. And at some point when the cost to produce something is meaningfully below the cost uh, that you can sell it, that is meaningfully higher than the cost at which you can sell it. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to cut production. Yeah. I think it's like, now, for, it's, it's claiming revenue going forward is in other industries, other industries do do it and they do get caught out. So, so, but why, why were they allowed to do that? Well, it's the, it's it's their method of forecasting uh, because rather than rather than wanting to be uh, they don't want to be forecasting price, forecasting costs, uh, and they rather not do that because they don't want to be perceived as colluding with the industry, with right. either side of the industry. So here here's today what it is, and then here are all these projects that are on the drawing board. Let's assume if some of those come in mm. and all of these projects that are in production right now, well, they're going to stay in production. Well, that's not the case. There's many reasons why they're going to come out and economics is the biggest reason. Yeah. And so yeah. as I started thinking about that, I, I, it, 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 and I started just working my way into the fuel cycle and talking to fuel buyers, CEOs, people in the industry have been around for a long time, uh, traders, enrichers, what I realized is everyone's using the same set of numbers. It's a closed loop. Right. But, they, but they've all got their own business model, but they're using the same data. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> right. Here, I could count on one hand the guys that are doing their own numbers. The industry, the utilities are frozen. They're waiting for something to come out. They, they're not in control of any aspect of this. So well, I guess a slight segue, sorry. Do, do you think it was a smart move by Energy Fuels or UR Energy great, to do this? Great question. So- Is it, it feels to me like a chess move. Yeah, I never knew what 232 was before it was announced in the middle of January, 2018. Now yeah. in my presentation uh, in June of 17, I talked about the, the US conundrum and how the Russians have the US in checkmate, but I didn't know what that answer was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My view is very simple. So the U.S. miners would tell you that the uh, foreign imports, uh, specifically the uh, you know the Kazakhs, and then you're going to see the Chinese coming in, uh, and the uh, and Russians are all state subsidized, and they don't have the same mining methodology, and they don't uh, put the same uh, environmental standards, and so their costs are lower. Uh, but it doesn't matter necessarily what the costs are because the state will subsidize. Right. And as a result, it's hurting them. Right. Now, that was never part of a thesis that I had because my view is the world is in a deficit now and that deficit will continue to increase. And, and, and in 2017, my, my thesis was certain pro project by project, certain projects can't stay online. They will come out of the mix and that will lead to a deficit. And that deficit will benefit all of the miners. Well, I shouldn't say all because many of them uh, but those with bullshit projects, because there are some of those in the junior mining world uh, that sell a good story. <laughs> yeah. But but those that with real projects uh, will benefit. Now, when you look at the the U.S., my my belief is if 232 came and, and the U.S. government, uh, if Trump said nothing, you get nothing. I believe there's a deficit in the world of uranium right now that 
you are energy and energy fuels will be fine. Undoubtedly, and you know, I know the energy uh, fuels uh, guy, Mark, because um, we spoke to him, they're sitting on a lot of cash as well. That, that, that also helps with optionality. But I guess the point I'm trying to get at is just to understand why they did it. Is it for, for the good of US producers or is it for the good of those two companies only? I should say, there's a global deficit uh, probably currently and definitely coming. Um, so everyone with cash, with a good asset, will be fine. I get that. But you know, do you think they specifically did this for their own benefit or for, for US produ uh, producers and developers? So, yeah, so um, you know, they'll, they're the only ones who can answer that question. Right. I can't speak for I, 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 I thought it was a great move. I, I, I thought it was, it was a move that, it, that was very brave and very bold. Uh, I, I take my hat I, off for that. Yeah. But it has paralyzed the market. It, 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 it has, and it's interesting because if we say it's 25%, make it up, that's what they say. Sure. Trump says, sure. Yeah. That's 12 million pounds a year. And you uh, told me it was going to take one to two right now. Less than one. Right. So that's going to take okay. a while, right? And Cameco can do three-ish, four-ish uh, energy fuels, but there will be others that would benefit from it. Right. Now, I also think when I say from a an American standpoint, I don't, I can't help that America put themselves in this position on the whole nuclear fuel cycle. Mm. Do I think that there should be more production in the United States so that there's less dependency on, on imports and those coming from those who may not have the US best interest? Yes. Right. So from so when you asked me earlier, from an American's perspective, I'd like to see us less dependent. I think, but I do think the markets will get you there. Uh, because I think the fundamental issue right now is the price of uranium is simply too low. And when you go back to the start of the last cycle in 2003, when the, the price was $9 or $14 in today's in 2019 dollars, mm. um, and, it, and, and it went up to 137 in the spot market at a peak, not the average price. The average price was about $88, $89 that year in 07. Um, that was driven by, by really uncovered demand, right? And if you go back and look in 03 and 04, right? Because most of, of historically, most of the industry is done, uh, transactions are done through long-term contracts, yep. right? It was at one time in the early 80s, it was 85, 90, uh, in the uh, early 2000s, 85, 90%. Now it's roughly 75 to 80%. But those are contracts that are, are uh, seven, eight, nine, 10 years in length. And as utilities start to bring their inventory levels down and it takes them a couple of years and they start to have what's called uncovered demand, not covered by contracts, what they then start to do is they start to forward contract a couple of years ahead of time. Now, if you look back at the last cycle, the similarities to this cycle are, are, are stunning. You know, if you look back in 04, uh, you had teens percent of uncovered demand over the next year, and then it went a little bit higher, and then a little bit higher, and then four years on, it was uh, 80 to 100 percent of uncovered demand. Hmm. Well, you look here, and you're seeing the same trajectory, where uncovered demand 
close to 20%, and then it gets close to 30%, and then close to 50% over the next, you know, three, four, five years. The, the utilities in the last cycle were contracting a few years before they had any uncovered demand. They're very, fuel buyers are very smart people. Uh, they're, you know, I think sometimes as an outsider in the industry, sometimes, uh, and I'm, I'm outspoken on it, sometimes the fuel buyers will say, well, you, 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 you don't think we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, on the contrary, you know, the fuel buyers have played this cycle so wonderfully right. that it should, and I've said this, I spoke to a, a group of 150 of them at the Nuclear Energy Institute in October. They played it beautifully and the miners did not. So, okay, well, tell me about that. Why, why do you say they played it beautifully? What have they done yeah, so, deliberately? So these contracts are seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And right. if, you, if you look at where the price was in 03, 04, 05, it starts going up. You know, people think, people say, well, what, what's the price? What's your price target uh, on uranium? Yeah. Well, uh, if you go back when, when people were signing, uh, when, when the price of uranium was at $137, they weren't booking contracts at $137. A, 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 a uranium miner is, if, if they're prudent, are going to have a mix of fixed contracts versus market-related contracts, maybe 40, 60, 40 fixed, 66. And, and as, as those prices are going up, you know, they've got to lock, lock in, they start locking in prices. So the, the price you realize over the long term is, is meaningfully lower than what the actual spot price is. Uh, so, so what you start seeing is with these prices, um, the, the prices will start to accelerate ahead of time, right? They start moving up ahead of time. And then what you, what you see is you start to, it starts to feed off itself because there's not a fuel buyer on the planet that's going to get fired for the price that he pays for uranium. The fuel buyer will get fired if he doesn't secure the supply of the uranium. For sure. And, right. And that is a very important distinction. And, and I think history is so important to look at with so, any of these. Cycles. So explain that. So what, I think what, what, you're, what you're saying there is that the uranium as itself as a percentage of the cost of running an energy operation. Yeah. Is is not de minimous, but it's 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 insignificant. The cost of so shutting it, down it, would be. Yeah. The yeah. Cost. So if, if you if you think about um, the uh, a coal fired or natural gas fired power plant, the input, the fuel, the uh, feedstock, coal or gas is 80 to 90 percent. Yeah. If you think about a nuclear reactor, you know, what's the biggest cost? Well, it's building a darn thing. And then and then it's operating and the regulatory burden is immense. Right. And so you could say how much how much of that regulatory burden is necessary? How much is really safety-related criti criticality mm. from a crit safety criticality standpoint versus just paperwork? But they're big expenses. Yeah. Uh, when you start looking at the, the smallest expense at about 20% is the, the front-end fuel cycle. Now, what does that include? That, that's uranium, that's conversion, that's enrichment, that's fabrication, and that's getting it uh, into your reactor. Of right. that... Right, so so about uh, uh, forty percent ish of that is is uranium. That's that's what it is. So could it be eight percent? And if uranium's down in the toilet, could it be three percent? But but we were you real five percent? But versus eighty or ninety for the other things. Now 
Now, does it matter? Sure. In, in the U.S., where there's, there's merchant markets, it's a competitive market. Natural gas prices have been low. Wind and solar, subsidized wind and solar have hurt it. Uh, but, but the overall cost worldwide to, to these reactors is, is single digits for uranium. Now, for the front-end fuel cycle, it's different, but that's not the pound to pull it out of the ground. But now, where you really see that is in the contracting cycle. You know, I'll read you some numbers, Matt. It's, it's quite stunning. Uh, when you were looking uh, in 2003, when you had uranium at $15 long-term uh, price, uh, average long-term price of 11 and the spot price of 10, you saw 70 million pounds contracted. Uh, when you were at, in 2004, the average spot price of 1860, and you saw uh, the average long-term price of 25, you had 90. When it got up to $25, so now for, it was from 1020 up to 25, so it had gone up two and a half times. Mm -hmm. The next year, you saw 240 million pounds, and then 225 and 215 as the price kept going up. So they were buying a third of what they were buying at the bottom and loading the boat yeah. at, the, at the top. No, I understand. And why, why is that? Because they were worried about the security of supply. Now, when you go back to the last cycle, there were 22 reactors under construction when it started. There was new mines, significant new mine supply coming online, upwards of 20% of existing supply. And you fast forward to today, there's those 55, 56 reactors under construction. And with the exception of a, a, a potential in Spain for a few million pounds, the price of uranium, where it sits today, there's not a project on the planet that will get financed to do that. And, and you're seeing uh, production coming offline. No, I've, I've, I've seen that. I think it's I think it's well documented. You've been very good at um, explaining some of some of your pieces previously. The the price is nowhere where it needs to be. It's, it's no, nowhere there. But do you think right. as the market develops, we're going to see a rapid increase? I mean, what's your sense of timing for all of this? Because like, I'm, I put my investor hat on. I want to know: Should I be piling in now, or can I wait for twelve months, invest in some other stuff, and come back in? To uranium at the end of this year, beginning yeah. of next. I mean, what? What are if your thoughts on this? That, if someone thinks that they, that's an individual decision. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so what, what are they going to do? What's the opportunity cost of their capital being flat exactly. down a little? And what's the upside if it works? And if it works, what's the upside? That goes all back to risk reward. I'll worry about my downside. What gets uranium back to ten bucks? I, I don't know what it does. Uh, another meltdown, God forbid, maybe. Um, it's 25 today, um, just from the sheer reactors under construction and, and they use 3x the amount of fuel on the initial load, the demand is, is there, the supply isn't there in the primary market, the secondary supply isn't there. But, but my worry every day is what gets it back to 10, 12, 14, 15, right? So I, I got to knock those down. Those are more outside events outside of my control mm -hmm. that would do that. None of it's in my control, but in terms of that, you can quantify. So now in terms of when does it turn? If we go back to the fourth quarter of 2017, now the uncovered demand, a very important point I want to make here. I went back to saying 0304, you had virtually no uncovered demand, very small over the next couple of years by utilities. But they started coming into the market and they, their contracting went 55, 70, 90, 240, 
right? Mm -hmm. In the fourth quarter, two, as you start to get into 2020, you're into the mid-ish high teens, and then it gets into the 20s, and it rapidly starts to accelerate of uncovered demand. Mm -hmm. In the fourth quarter of 17, you saw reasonable size requests for proposals from the utilities, the U.S. utilities in the marketplace for uranium. Now, they have not really had sizable price discovery for a while. And, and there's an interesting thing that happened in the market that hadn't really existed 2012 through 2016, 2017. And that's something called the carry trade that was introduced into the uranium market. What, tell me about <clears> that. What is that? So, so if we go back to 2000 and for 2005 as they're ramping in six, ramping these big contracts, what you started to see is those start to expire in 13 and 14 and 15. Now in 2011, Fukushima had its accident. There was the accident there. Some of the big investment banks who have commodity trading desks, very smart. They were working in an environment with 5,000 year low interest rates. And they went to the utilities and said, listen, as your contracts are rolling off, don't enter into long-term deals because we don't know where the price of uranium is going to be. We're not sure, right? It's, it's At this time, it's in the 40s and 50s and coming down. But we don't know where it's going to settle because you guys don't have really a lot of uncovered demand. Japan is not coming back online like people had thought it would. Uh, the United States Department of Energy is selling uranium or bartering uranium to pay for the cleanup of two old gaseous diffusion plants. Let us use our balance sheet. We'll charge you a fee. So, and, and, and we'll carry it. That's the term carry yeah. trade. We'll carry it and we'll go out and buy it. So buy one two-year deal with us and we will hold it and deliver it to you in the future. And all of a sudden, the utilities are saying, well, wait a second, we don't have to lock into a seven, eight, nine, 10 year deal. Mm. We don't have to buy market escalated price. We don't know where it's going. We can really reduce our risk. That became like crack cocaine, like crack cocaine to utilities. And 12, 13, 14, 15, now the, the big guys who started at the banks aren't in the commodities trading business anymore. But for many years, it was a very meaningful portion that created this, this lack of price discovery. Now there's always, there's contracting taking place, but not the, you know, when you're going from 70 to 200 million pounds, that's a difference in what you're that's going to interesting. see. So you're saying that lack of price discovery is, you know, ha had a, a meaningful impact on the marketplace. It's had, now there is that's, price discovery. There's always some long-term contracting taking sure, place, but, but, as, but as you look at the volumes, let me, let me let, let, let tell you the volumes in, in uh, the long-term volumes, you went from 240 million pounds in 2005, you, you had 24 million pounds contracted in 2013, 77, 80, yeah. 70. I mean, nothing compared to what it had been. And so, so it was, it, it had fallen off a cliff now. So, so you started and, and the USU and the utilities are saying, well, why should I? Because I've got these carry trades. Now the carry trades, you know, as rates start to as they come off the bottoms, and there's you start to see people trying to raise rates. There's less of an appetite for that, and that's right. that's been much more muted, and and so you're not seeing that that occur as much. So you have and these so kind of you have these kind of synthetic products out there, you know, affecting conventional behavior. But but has yes. that sort of come and gone in a very short space of time? And I mean, you said people don't feel so strongly about those now. I mean, what's happening now? 
So now in the fourth quarter of 17, you start to see some RFPs. Right. Okay. In okay. the January 18th, I think it was, of, of 2018, maybe January 15th, I forget the exact day, uh, uh, you see the 232 petition filed. Hmm. Well, so what did that do? Now, these contracts are not negotiated on a telephone call. They can take three, four, five, six, seven months. They can take a long time, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Very smart people on both sides trying to figure out how to negotiate it. So now the U.S. miners, or sorry, the U.S. utilities are saying, well, wait a second, let's step back. We don't know what's going to happen. Now the U.S. leads the charge. They're, they're the biggest out there. Mm-hmm. We're, we don't know from whom and how much we're going to be told. Now that's January of 18. July, nobody knows at that point if the Department of Commerce will even pick up the investigation. In July of 18, they said they would. And they had 90, uh, 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 270 days, nine months. And on, uh, on April 14th, they, uh, in July, they said, we'll investigate. In April, they made their recommendations. Now, what that has done is it has created uh, paralysis because the utilities in the U.S. simply don't know what they're going to be told they have to do. Hmm. So when I say real price discovery, it's that utility that's going in to buy 5 million pounds a year every year for the you know for seven years eight years what's he going to pay for that right now and presumably what are where, the conditions under which they have to pay right. which we don't and so know what's happening in the spot market and when, when you see the when you look at the the bought to consume you know when you look at 05 to 12 the utilities were buying 136 percent of their needs okay they were over buying hmm. over buying over buying from 2013 to 2018, they were buying 72% of their needs. So where's that come from? Where's the balance? Inventory drawdown. And that's where that's come from. Yeah. So now what you have is you have a spot market that is tightened, right? And if you listen to the Cameco call, Cameco said, uh, we couldn't find a million pounds, right? And there's other case they couldn't find a million pounds or they couldn't find a million pounds at the price they wanted. What, well, how they, do you work that they out? Would have, no, they would have paid. They couldn't take delivery. Now, what's, what, that, what's that mean what you need though, to, when they, they couldn't well, take so, delivery? So, so the, 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 the uranium market is a, a big swaps market. Sure. Right? There's different paper. Paper everywhere. You, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's paper, right? Yeah. And the swaps market was very, 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 very active. But now when the swaps market is dried up and you need, you, you need okay. to actually take physical delivery, it becomes a different ballgame. It becomes harder to find, so they really they were not able to fill a million pounds of demand. Now I said these utility buyers are very smart people, and they played the cycle very very well, mm-hmm. right? And they really did. Now why they stayed out of the market? They did the carry trade. They came into the market and in, uh, in, uh, at the end of seventeen, some of the started the request for proposals. They didn't know what they're going to do. They pulled out of the market. But what's been happening in the spot market? Average volumes over the last, from 2001, 40 million pounds a year. In 2018, it was 89 million pounds. Now, there are those who would say, well, all these financial players, I can promise you, I am at all of these major nuclear power conferences, and I see the rosters. There's three or four of us. So who are the financial players? Because Yellowcake, they bought 8 million pounds last year. Yeah. Uh, UPC buys a little bit. A couple of family offices by a few hundred thousand pounds. 
these are, this, this, these are people entering the market, some traders, there's trader activity taking place, but the spot market's ramping up because the utilities are bright people and they know that, that, that inventories are tightening. They know that uncovered demand is out there and they need to start getting price discovery. So let's see, again, I like, this is fascinating to me because I, I don't know a lot of this. Um, so it's always interesting to listen to someone like you, but you know, can we just talk about the impact of people um, like Yellow Cake and UPC in the marketplace? Because again, as an investor, I've got to make this call <clears throat> as to what I think the equities is doing. Um, should I be going ETF? Should I be buying physical? You know, because the well, the uranium ETF is a calamity, right? And it's put it it, it has. I mean the. The assets have been cut in, in, in the middle of last year, they decided to reconstitute the ETF. And they went from 100% miners to 40% miners and the rest nuclear power players. But right. these are, they have a gold company, they have Korean and Japanese, they have conglomerates in there. It is nothing close to being a pure play. Now, when they first announced that they had to go from 100 down to 40, there was a lot of selling Sure. of those equities to do that into a market that junior miners don't trade hardly. They're very illiquid. So that that for, for several months, you saw big pressure on the equities. What, what Global X, the ETF, miscalculated was, uh, well, a lot of people aren't going to want to own this because it's not a pure play. So you've literally seen the assets get cut in half. And every day we track that. And you see they had 100, they, they, they have a withdrawal. They got to sell those stocks. And so it's been a very technical that's reason. That's but notice you didn't discount the buying physical because you know, the price moves, the price moves. You get an immediate reaction, immediate mm -hmm. value creation there. So is that something that you guys look at with your fund? Well, so we, we can, we can. But you, you're saying so you... There's, how, how do you play this, right? So there's the physical players. Mm -hmm. And what you do when you own the physical, you take out the bullshit risk, right? Of, yep. junior, of, of some of the well, junior miners. Exactly, exactly. Um, Right, um, the direct now, correlation right, so, to value creation. Yeah, I get it. And, and some of them, not all, but but the junior mining business, right? I mean, these business, not all. And again, it's up to people to do their own homework and determine what's what's solid. But but some of them uh, are in the business of raising equity all the time. And so, you know, you have to determine what's a good project, what's not. But so, how do you play it? You can play it. I can I can go buy physical and store it right with my fund. Um, I, you can buy UPC or yellow cake, which is a physical proxy. Now, UPC will give you exposure to UF6 as well as, as uh, uranium, U308. Um, uh, and then the ETF is, is not, not great, and that's seen massive withdrawals. Uh, now, there is, I saw they're putting together an index of pure play miners. I haven't seen the ETF surrounding that, but you can see that. And then you, and then you get into producers, near-term producers, and then exploration companies. And right now comprises your 50-ish or so companies. Okay, so th this is the bit I really want to get into. So as an investor, I'm looking at the uranium space. I can, if I, I'm buying your story, I'm going, there's a, there's a huge deficit here. It's a tsunami uh, of, of demand waiting to, uh, to happen. But as you say, there are good, the good companies and not so good companies. What are the things, what are the components that you look for when you look to identify a good company versus a bad company, because you know, for, for me in conventional mining, I, I know what those signs are. Is it any different in the uranium space? You know, there are fifty 
companies at the moment and split them up. I don't, I'm not quite sure how it breaks down in terms of um, ex early stage explorers, uh, etc. But how do you mo break them mo down? Most well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the market has helped do that for it's culled out many of these companies over the years. There's still a fair amount that's out there, right? So you start at the top, and especially in mining, who's who's done this before? Have they done a good job, right? Do they have a history of doing well? Um, what did they do in the last cycle? Did they make money for shareholders, right? That's very important. What's the quality of that? Right. For me, and, and I'll tell you, I read a few hundred pages a day. Um, I, For me, there's nothing like reading uh, uh, annual reports going back to the beginning of the last cycle and all the way through. I've read every chemical report you could think of. I've read all these juniors that are out there as far back as they go. You read them. You, you watch their presentations, right? YouTube's a fabulous tool. Uh, it, it marks what you've said. And so go back and look at the interviews. Go back and look at the, at the annual reports and what they've said in their management discussion and analysis mm. and just keep, read it year after year and see how much has changed. Like, did they, did they promise X and X never occurred and now they're promising Y and promising Z, you know, the, the, the risk you run investing in these junior companies is they're kind of like biotech companies, biotech service, the outsourced R and D arm of pharma, if you will, big pharma. Right. And, one of them is going to, two of them, 10 of them are going to come up with something, but a lot don't. They're really in the business of issuing equity to keep funding R&D. Right. So some of, the, some of these junior miners just keep issuing equity, diluting shareholders to keep drilling projects that are going nowhere. Right. So, I mean, at the moment, it kind of sounds like uranium is just like any other any other commodity, really, in the, in the sense that you're looking to the management to inform your decision making, and you and I agree with you. You should look back over time and see if they've kept. Don't their just look at the, but, but 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 you can't just look at the management because they're all they're all polished. No, I, right? I, 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 I agree. They all tell a good story. You got to look at their track record. Exactly. So we're coming to it. So the same thing is that you look at the management team. You listen to what they say. Have they delivered? Have they delivered shareholder value before? Have they delivered a project like this? possibly even in this jurisdiction before. Is there anything kind of specific to uranium? Because you've not mentioned any technical component yet, but I suspect a lot of your diligence does involve looking at the company from a technical yeah, perspective. So, you know, sure. So there's a big school, there's wide school, various schools of thoughts on this, right? right? And I think you have to think about it in terms of second level thinking, in terms of how the cycle plays out. So if let's, let's take a, a trot around the uranium world. Okay, fantastic. Geographically, let's do a geographical trot around the globe, right? So Kazakhstan is Kazakhstan and they have JVs and you're not going to have direct access to that. If you invest in Cameco, you you, you might, right? Uh, but that's through being a shareholder of Cameco. But as, as you think about the world, uh, so, so Kazakhstan, lower grade ISR mining, pumping it out uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, as you get to the, uh, the, the highest grade uranium in the world, by uh, orders of magnitude uh, is, is the Athabasca Basin mm -hmm. in, in Canada. Uh, severe high grade, you can get grades into the, you know, the average grade around the world is 0 0.1, 0 0.1, right? Uh, 0 0.2, you can get grades up there as, as you know, 20, 30, 40% uranium. Um, so meaningfully higher. Now, 
on paper, that is very attractive because the higher the grade, uh, the the better the economics mm. for the miner, right? Now, so so where does that come into play? So uh, the Athabasca Basin is a big basin. There's uh, the east coast, uh, there's the east side of the basin and, and the southwest side of the basin, right? Uh, the newer discoveries have been in the southwest side of the basin with some really beautiful, wonderful deposits. And, and the east side is, is where you see the bigger, more established ones that are there that have been around the MacArthur Rivers. Um, now, what you, one has to ask themselves is, uh, what is the market and when is the market going to pay up for those big juicy deposits that can go into production? The market has to ask, people have to ask itself, when will they pay and who, who will pay, right? So to for someone to blindly say on any, any company, oh, they're up there, oh, they have this grade and therefore <clears throat> I'm going to buy the stock, you can't do that. Each company is different, each management team is different. Uh, then you have explorers that are up there that haven't found yet. Right now, I, I, I have access to geologists, mining engineers that, that because I said earlier, I don't know either. I, I'm not a geologist or a mining engineer. I'm smart enough to know people who do uh, and, and, and I can talk to that, that can guide me and help me um, that are, don't work for the company because uh, that's where you, you go off the rails. Um, so. So you have to ask yourself is, because what's the goal of a junior miner? Most don't want to go into production. They want to get taken out. Of course. Right? That's, that's how you're going to see it. That's the game. Uh, so, so when is the market going to pay? And, and, and you have to ask yourself, is there infrastructure? What's the cost of this project going to be? What's the appetite right now for a large cost project for somebody to buy their shares today? It might be different in 12 months, 6 months, 18 months. It might be meaningfully different. When, 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 this, when the green shoots that, that I, I see every day in the industry start to pop through into the, when I'm talking in the fuel cycle, I mean, I see when, when you see it through price discovery, mm. that's when uh, psyche changes, sentiment changes, and then all of a sudden, where, are people going to pay for that stuff? Yes. As I think, as I look in the U.S., in the U.S. mining industry, right, they're small companies, in the global landscape, they don't mean that much. Now, some of them are materially mispriced based upon who they are and where what they can produce. Now, 232 has thrown a kink in that only because you don't know which way it's going to do. And to the extent that the 232 petition did a disservice to some of the U.S. companies, because mm -hmm. as you and I spoke about earlier, there's I think there's a shortage now and there's going to be a shortage and they'll get their fair share of it and it's all good. But when a decision comes out from Trump, it will be treated as a binary event. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. Yeah. Right. So, but the grades in the U.S. are low, the size of the projects are small, and so you just have to look at the individual companies and look at it. And I have, now, how do you get bagged? What people tend to do is there's the buy the pounds in the ground game. So many companies go out and keep acquiring pounds. Yeah. And the market will look at it on an enterprise value per pound basis, right? So EV per pound. Well, if I have more pounds in the denominator, I'm going to bring down my valuation. So I look cheaper. The game some companies play is they buy bullshit pounds. They buy uneconomical pounds. And all of a sudden they trumpet how many pounds they have. So just to look at it on an EV per pound basis, you're doing yourself a disservice as an investor. What you need to do 
is look at their core projects and see what the cost to build is going to be, see what the internal rate of return is going to be, what the cash flow from that's going to be, what is the net asset value per share based on that, mm -hmm. what is the cash flow multiple the market's going to pay for that, right? Or they're generating X when they go into production, you have to ask yourself, do they go into production at what price? It's, you got to understand that. How much can they produce? And then you have to ask yourself, what's that, and what's that cash flow stream worth? But just doing it on EV per pound on a ground basis, you're going to get run over because people are going to, a lot of companies have bullshit pounds. No, I, I, I think I, I understand that. And I, you know, I think, I think that's probably very similar to a lot of mining businesses you know you've got to look at those things you know, and you're, you're coming at it from an analytical point of view um do you, are there other things which are more um you know like, like you know are they fully permitted do they have the licenses in place are you so, comfortable so, with the jurisdiction yeah. i mean how do you yeah well so in, in uranium it's you know it, it can take like many mine like many mining industries but you know it could take you 15 to 20 years from exploration to actually having your mine there and so it's very important to understand. And that's a good point, Matt, because as you look at the world of uranium and the geo, geopolitical aspect that comes into play is very important. Because if we think about what we said earlier, China and Russia are, are, are really leading the nuclear fuel cycle for, for the years to come. One of the things, neither one of them have as much uranium, indigenous uranium. They, they don't have it. They have a little, but not a lot. So they need to go out and acquire to be able to vertically integrate. The uranium is a critical portion of that. So they're on, they need to go out and buy pounds. They need to buy projects. Now, where can they not buy? They, the Russians aren't going anywhere in the West, and no one's allowing them to do that. You had the uranium one deal years ago, but that's done. Um, and the Chinese could take a minority stake, but nobody's going to grant them full ownership of something. Uh, uh, just for geopolitical purposes. So where can they go and buy meaningful pounds? Into, they can go into Africa. They can go to Niger. They can go to Namibia. And they have. And they buy. And people say, ah, oh, they're... And, and so investors might look at it, really sharp investors, and say, yeah, but gosh, the grades there are terrible. They're low. They're, they're expensive projects. It, it could be a few hundred million, 300 million, whatever, 100 million you got to understand the motivation of the buyer. The buyer needs pounds. Hmm. The buyer being China, Russia, a Middle Eastern sovereign wealth fund. The Middle East is, is growing like crazy. Uh, India needs a, a huge amount of pounds. Um, and they're state subsidized. So they don't really necessarily care what the cost to pull it out of the ground is. They might pay to finance the mine in return for an offtake agreement, right? So you got to, what's the second level of this stuff? Not just who has the best, highest grade uranium, it's who is going to be the one that's in play as the cycle unfolds. And then what are those valuations? And how do they compare to where they're trading now versus historically where they have been and what a reasonable buyer would pay for them? No, so, yeah, th thank, you for, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So if I was, if I was to sum up the... From an investor's point of view, so you there's obviously there's the the financial ratios, whichever you know you you choose to apply to the company, and the geopolitical component is, is clearly important. And we're talking today about 
equities. Yeah, I'm just well, so we've talked some a little bit about physical, but you know, mainly equities. People are going to be saying, right, you know, where should I be buying? Should I be buying U.S. stock now? Should I be buying the Australian guys? Should I be buying developers with pounds on the ground? Should I be buying producers? I mean, today nothing's really moving. But if they were to buy something for the future, where would you be pointing them? Or would you advocate well, so, so, a portfolio approach? So everything starts with the macro and uranium. You could have the best uranium project in the world. You could have the best management team in the world who's yeah. made money before. If the price of uranium doesn't move, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. So in that case, you got to believe you the believe, fundamentals for sure. If you believe the fundamentals, then and 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 you want certainty and or not certainty. There's no certainty. But if yeah. if the fundamentals are right and the, and it works, the physical will go up. Right. right? So. How do you express that? You buy physical, you buy UPC, you buy yellow cake, right? right. That, that's that's how you express that view. Right. If if you say, okay, I want to take on some more risk, and have more exposure to the operating leverage in a mining business when the price of the commodity goes up, hmm. your choices are producer, near-term producer, exploration company. But you right? you would definitely think about it, a producer. You, that was like for uranium, it's it's something which would deliver value. I think absolutely. I, I personally think the valuations and, and I don't talk individual companies, uh, but but it, along uh, producers uh, near term and exploration, uh, the valuations have been decimated and uh, there's real value. Now it depends, right? So I, I see a lot of people ask me, is it, where's the price going? 150, 200, right? right. I, I have no idea. It, the market will determine that and fear and greed will determine the price of uranium. It, if, if history is any indication, last cycle, it went from nine to 137. Now what, and, and again, this is an important point, I think. There were 22 reactors and new supply coming online. Now what, what curtailed that new supply? In 0304, MacArthur River flooded in 0506 and 0607, Cigar Lake had two floods. But now you got back to no supply coming online. Today, you got two, two and a quarter, two and a half times the number of reactors coming online and no new supply on the horizon unless the price gets to 50 plus. So you say, okay, well, I think the backdrop is better. Now, I, I also think the fuel buyers are smart people. In 17, they started to come into the market. Now, they're not going to stand up there ever and say, yeah, you know, we're good. We're good with the price. They're going to fight you tooth and nail for it. That's their job, sure. right? Sure. But, but you, they're, but that's why it's so important to lay it out. Lay out every year the volumes, the spot prices. Lay it out. What was the uh, pounds bought? The drawdowns, the bought to consume. I mean, you got to do the, you got to do the work. And when you do that work, what jumps out at you is saying history. It doesn't always repeat exactly, but it rhymes. And what you'll see is, as the price starts moving. They'll start coming into the market. So we're so for us internally, our projects, we go up from 55 depending 55 to 70 dollars is the price we use. Uh, so where does it get there? Now the question is when does it start to get there? So 232 is going to come in theory by July 14th. Right. And one way or the other, it's it's going to be perceived uh, as binary. Some some stocks will go up, some will go down. Over time, I think the market will realize that there's a deficit. Now, when will they realize that is when 
you start to see price discovery. So what happens? Because I'm on Twitter, uh, I, I see sentiment. And because I'm a public voice of uranium, uh, it comes at me all day long. I keep it off most of the day and then once in a while I'll check in on it. But, but people are not focusing on the number one thing that is the most important thing that most people have the opportunity is time arbitrage. It doesn't matter if it's this quarter or next quarter. And what's happened is 232 is going to come and people are going to say, holy cow, today we didn't see that contract come the, next, the day after 232. We didn't see it the next day after. Everyone has to sit back and understand the utilities are going to say, well, what does this mean? How does, the, how does this get implemented? Now, what they're doing now, what the fuel buyers are doing now, is they're now talking to miners, understanding what production capabilities are. They want to know, right? So it, they're smart people. So over a period, is it going to be a quarter or two? You're going to start to see that come. All of that was, that was pent up in, in fourth quarter of 17. Those RFPs come back, and that's when you start to see it over the next couple of quarters. So people ask, where do I expect the price to go? Predicting the price of a commodity is a fool's errand. Now, in the price of uranium, where do I know that it has to go for production to come online? Well, Cameco is not going to bring online unless they've lost their mind, and I don't think they have. You're, you're going to need to be north of 45, right? Um, you know, Cameco says on the call, and, and I have huge respect for those guys, they say on their conference call, well, don't forget that there's tier one and tier two assets that could come back online, and there's financial players who have it, yes. That could be at 45, 50, 55, 60 dollars. Now, if you're a Cameco and you've seen a billion dollars in cash flow get cut by two-thirds over the downturn, are you going to jump when you get the price to 45? Are you going to say, okay, sold to you, we'll take it all? No, it, that's not a market commercial behavior. Mm. You're going to now have to make up for all that capital that's disappeared and all the shareholder value that hasn't been accreted. These aren't unsophisticated players. Same thing with the yellow cakes and the UPCs. They're not selling uranium, I don't think, at 30, 35. Once the market starts moving, now it becomes a, a, a seller's market, not a, not, not a buyer's market. And so that's where I think you, know, you start to see it move. So I think when we use, when we think about, we sit around, my team and I, I, I think it's a do you see at the end of the year, can you see into the mid, mid-ish 30s? Yes, sure. I, and that's, I think, healthy. What do I use longer term? 55, 66, depending on the project, $70. Do I think you could see a spike? You know, don't forget, spike to 137. Mm. It depends what the market wants. You don't need it to. And that's the thing about buying these equities when the physical price of uranium is in the mid-20s, which is where I started this journey. So, you, so just... It, just I, on, on the equities thing, because I do want to get, I do want to get onto just one more topic, um, because it's, like I said, there's so much to cover here, and we, we, I think we've said we, we will um, talk another day on specifics, but just on the equities component, do you think that there is still, even with this deficit coming up, you know, it, it should bode well for for lots of people in the uranium space, but do you think that there still be will there will still be some casualties? in the equity space. You know, so we get that's there. a great question. So my DNA is a short seller. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's exactly. how I made my living for half my career. And even the second half of my career, I was an aggressive short seller. Um, in my fund, I don't short anything. Okay. 
And the reason I don't is because when the cycle turns, what you typically see is the shittiest of the lot will move up enormously. But, so, given, but given you can't determine or you're unwilling to de determine, I think sensibly unwilling to determine the timing on this, there are going to be companies running out of cash, even if they're sitting on reasonable assets. Unless you say there's going to oh, be... Oh, yeah, but, but if you get uranium at $35 spot by yes. year end... If they can make it that yeah. long, yeah. Well, you, yeah, but you asked me saying I'm not willing to determine. Sure. It, if it's at 35, which I think it should be, then or 34, 37... Mm. That will that sentiment change will will. You think they could raise capital at that? It'd be expensive capital, but they they could raise it just to survive. They've been doing it for seven eight years, and and unfortunately, retail has financed these stories. Mm. Right, true. true. They financed stories when the price of uranium was seventeen. They finance stories when the price of uranium was 19. What you don't do in the Australia and, and in the UK, they do here is they give warrants. So they'll give five-year warrants. Now that's up to the individual shareholder to determine. Now, what I do see is a lot of people will say, you know what, the uh, these guys are going to have to go into production and they're going to have to issue to, to issue equity. Well, they're going to project finance these things. It's going to be 80% debt, 20% equity. And in your math, you have to do that math. And it, maybe it's 70-30 assume dilution and carry your numbers forward yeah well it'd be interesting to see what happens between now and christmas i guess because you know I, I think we are now to suggest that there's it's going to get a bit hairy for a few um between now and then look I'm, again just be conscious hairy for hairy for what for some of some of the juniors sitting on maybe with pounds on the ground but with not a lot of cash will they be able to make it through you know, and will they be able to raise capital at the price that they? Well, you realize, Well, yeah, I I have no opinion on that. That's I I don't stay. In no, the, I understand. The, you. I understand. But but the um but don't forget if they're a Canadian they get flow through financing. Yeah, yeah. That will keep them afloat. Yeah, I understand. Many the 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 thing you see this cycle is where, where it really becomes a problem is when you got debt virtually not not all but most don't have debt so it's just a matter of issuing equity telling a story and finding people who are willing to finance that story mm. where it becomes where you see companies get in mass wiped out is when they've got interest payments to make and they can't make them yeah for sure like i say you know it's it's, it's it's the same for lots of commodities you know over the over the past few years um like i said i guess we'll, we'll sort of sit, sit back and, and see and perhaps it's a discussion we can get into a little bit deeper next time but can I throw a question at you with regards to nuclear? You know, you empower the nuclear industry, literally. Um, do you think nuclear is a transitional energy source? Do you think people are going to try and become green? They're moving away from fossil fuel. They want to go green. Nuclear has positioned itself as a clean, green, clean energy, and I think it's doing a really good job of that. Um, you're still going to have some naysayers talk about, you know, toxic sure. waste and all sorts of issues that need to be dealt with. And they, they, and those those may be real and me, you know, meaningful issues that do need to be discussed. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, it's, you know, we're, we're talking about zero carbon energy from nuclear. It's, it's doing a great job promoting itself. But 
Do you, will it survive? You're talking about a depleting a, a depleting um, asset potentially in terms of you know is there enough of this to go you know go around and at some point it's going to run out. So you know if it is a transitional energy, how long will it be around for? And is there money to be made? Well, you know, in the last uh, what 15 years, it's gone from 16 percent down to 11 percent of electricity generation. Hmm. <clears throat> Wind and solar has taken some, natural gas especially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think the questions people need to ask, you know, uh, don't forget uh, 100 reactors, 99 reactors in the United States, right? But now over 100, uh, 100 gigs of electricity. Um, and what's, what's, what's hurt that here in the U.S.? Well, uh, I would argue low interest rates, uh, Fed experimental policy of easy money, has created uh, the shale boom, uh, which has gone taken natural gas, which at any point in time traded six, seven, eight bucks per MCF, even went higher, down to two and a half. And if you look at the the shale plays, you know two thirds of them don't make a dime, regardless of the price. Depletion rates are enormous. The ongoing capital expenditures to stay ahead of the depletion rates are staggering. They have hundreds of billion dollars in debt coming due in the next few years. Uh, in, in, in the latter part of the year, early part of this year, you're seeing investors starting to step back a little bit from wanting to finance that. So one of the constants and givens, at, at least in, in the United States with this shale energy independence is that natural gas is gonna stay low forever. It's gonna be two and a half dollars. Natural gas at $5 turns the economics upside down for a nuclear power plant. So. But, but the recency bias of what's happened because of stupid, cheap, easy money for anyone to finance these things for these shale plays, which are most of them are not economic. And you're starting to see activist investors come in and starting to demand production cuts, right? So where does it, does it happen tomorrow? I don't know. But so in terms of longer term, I'm not so sure that, and I'm not a natural gas expert, but I'm a common sense guy. Um, and I am a capital markets guy, and I know that for a decade, these companies just just piss money down the drain. So I think that that's that environment. Around the rest of the world, um, I think wind and solar grows. I don't think it displaces nuclear because it doesn't have the storage capabilities. We're going to hear everyone say, oh, storage costs are coming down, storage coming costs are down. Look, look what's happened in Germany since, since they've gone green. Hundreds of billions of dollars spent. Carbon emissions are up. Cost of electricity is up. It's a it's a it's a complete shit show for them. And their neighbor France, who's seventy five percent nuclear power, has half the cost of electricity and uh, and and are meeting all of their climate goals. I, I and 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 the growth you're seeing in the Middle East, the growth you're seeing in the developing world, I think I think it has its role. Is it a does it go to ten percent, twelve percent, nine percent? I I don't know. I know for the purpose of any forecast period I could look at over a decade, I, I, I think it's going to be a critical part of the uh, electricity generation in the world. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. I, again, I think that probably one for a, a, another another time because I think that's a really big topic. There's lots of people coming out from both sides, very passionate about their position, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit more um, about that one. So I'm going to finish with one big question for you, which is. Is anyone making money in the uranium space at the moment, and how? I mean, uh, well, so Cameco is generating EBITDA, right? They they got some cash flow. Aside from that, no, you'd be hard pressed to uh, to find real profits in the in the uranium space. Okay. I mean, because 
who's out of prom. But so, if you're looking for profits, you're in the wrong, you shouldn't be investing in this right now. Right now. At the, at the depth of a bear. If you're, if you're looking at returns on capital, if you're looking at who's generating profits at, 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 at what is the, I think the bear market ended, but this is not the, this is not the cycle to be investing in. Okay. Okay. No, that, that's, that's, fair, that's a fair comment. Now, I'm going to let you sign off by explaining. I saw that saw this piece you did, uh, kind of comparing the uranium space to the Big Short. I really like that. I really like that. You know, you're where you're you're saying you're explaining um, how the subprime uh, loan space and the subprime bond space has had no correlation, although they should have. And is that you? You're kind of saying that about what we're going through at the moment. People should see what's coming down the line and be optimistic. There, There is a a complete disconnect between the fundamentals that have dramatically improved over the last couple of years. 20% plus of world supply has come offline. The secondary market, which has been the 800 pound gorilla of, of supply underfeeding, whether it is Conferences I speak at, they're, they're there and stand up and say, we are reducing the underfeeding. So it that has peaked and is coming down. Supply is coming down. Uncovered demand is right in front of your nose. Mm. Uh, and I went back and looked at a lot of bull cases in 2014 and 2013 and 2015. YouTube's wonderful, like I said. Yep, big fan. You've got a carry trade. No long-term uncovered contracts, un uncovered demand. Uh, you've got uh, uh, the Japanese having marine reactors online. There was no bull story. The, the, the uncovered demand is what drives this. Supplies, inventories working down. And back that time, 13, 14, 15, they were coming off of buying years of 250, 40, 30 million pounds of inventory. What happens, though, is this is a closed-loop world, unlike anything I have ever seen. It is an opaque market. It is not followed by institutional investors. And I'm sorry to say retail investors, while they're very bright people and whatever they do, they're great. And I see some really smart ones do the numbers. They've, they've kept many of these companies afloat by financing them. And, um, but, but building the numbers out, rolling them out and, and putting it, the, the numbers in this industry are predicated just kind of like a ratings agency. We make that correlation. But the rating agency says everything's fine. It's AAA tranches in AAA tranches. It's all good, right? It's AAA rated. The number the number makers here, the consensus makers here, bright people. I always uh, but but I I I I think that they're they're either handcuffed in how they can forecast the numbers or are so afraid to put their neck on the line that they, they put numbers out there that you can drive a freight ocean liner through, like I said, and which allows you to morph to wherever the market is at any given time. And that's fine if you're in the business of doing that. If you're in the business of putting your balls on the line and making money, you better do your own analysis and you better, you better be right, right? Those, those kooks in the big short, those crazy guys were, who were trying to see what everyone else wasn't seeing, they didn't care what the rating agency said. They did their own work. And that's kind of how we view it. 
I don't care what consensus says. We've done our own work and we believe strongly. Now, outside influences come in at 232, right? Comes in. 232 is not part of our thesis. It still isn't part of our thesis. We didn't even know what it was at the time. All it does is take a little time for the pause and buying. Another thing I saw on Twitter, somebody said, ask me about the Urano strike. This could be a big deal. There you go. Yes. Yes, that was one. Okay. Well, so, so what winds up happening is uh, people bring up, what's the thesis on uranium, right? Global uh, oversupply leads uh, to uneconomic pricing, leads to production cuts, leads to uh, reduction in primary supply, secondary supply in a, in a demand environment where uncovered demand is accelerating and contracting cycle is going to start. That's the thesis. Now, 232 is noise. Somebody, like I said, uh, uh, whether Arano could settle the strike at, 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 at their mill, uh, it's not a strike. They're late, in May, if they don't, there could be a strike. Right. Who knows? It, it doesn't matter. Does it mean if a strike comes that yes, that is good because you could see 18 million pounds come off the market? That's great. But what it sets up is this. Nobody knows how those labor negotiations are going to go. It's not fundamental to the thesis of uranium for it to move. What it does do is if the strike comes into, uh, if there is no strike, it, it sets people up for a disappointment that was unnecessary. So if it happens, great. It's, it's a cherry on top. If it doesn't, who cares? Yeah. Um, that's kind of how I view that. No. So, yeah. Mike, that, that's been fantastic. Like, the reason we wanted to speak to you is because you have this view on, on the marketplace. You, you, have, you are doing your own analysis. You are giving us insight which wasn't there before. I think you're you know, deeply respected by a lot, a lot of people in the marketplace. And we, you know, I'd like to thank you for the, the work which you share with, 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 with us. Um, there's, a, like I say, there's a lot we've talked about on a very superficial level. I'd love to di deep dive yeah. into some of that with you. Um, again real soon because uh, I know Mark loves hearing what you have to say and uh, so do we so thanks again for your time Mike thank you very much for watching our video we do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions so if you liked what you just saw please give us a thumbs up and if you want to see more insightful in-depth honest and unbiased interviews then please click the subscribe button so thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.